Yeah, do pray. Yes, I'll pray for Morris. So, Father God, thank you for Morris. Thank you for the gifts of teaching that you've given to him. And we pray now for a fresh anointing by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as he gives to us, may you give to him. May his cup overflows. And thank you for this dynamic book, the story of Joshua. And I pray for each one of us as we listen, Lord, that you will open the eyes of our heart. Lord, help us to catch those truths that you want us to really run with as a result of being here today. So come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Anne. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for coming on this day. And thank you, Ben and team, for leading us so wonderfully into the presence of God. Do you realize that we're here today to spend time studying the book that has been consistently the world's bestseller for years and years and years? That's a pretty good way to spend a Saturday, isn't it? And I get thrilled and excited as I see that this book is so relevant to our current situation and really does show us God's way in our lives in very practical applications. So, I hope that you've had opportunity to read those first eight chapters. It's interesting, isn't it, that when we read the Bible day by day at home, we read a little paragraph or two. On Sunday, the preacher preaches on a verse or a paragraph or two. But these Bible books were written as books. And it's wonderful to read them as such and to get the whole drift. And surely as we read the first chapters of Joshua, it's exciting stuff. You know, quite apart from the fact that this is the word of God, there are some rattling good stories in here, aren't there? And um, so I hope that you've enjoyed uh, acquainting or reacquainting yourself with Joshua. Let's read chapter 1 and verses 1 to 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of man, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Baron Fitzgerald was a very wealthy man. 
He had just one son who left home early on and died soon afterwards. Fitzgerald was heartbroken that his only son and heir was dead. His wealth increased, and as it did so, he invested it in amassing a great collection of works of art. And when he died, his will called for all the paintings to be sold. You can imagine that collectors and museum directors gathered in large numbers for this amazing auction. So the auctioneer began by reading the, from part of the will of Baron Fitzgerald, which said that the first painting to be sold must be the painting of my beloved son. It was a painting by an unknown artist and quite honestly of inferior quality and no one was interested. And so the only person who made any bid was an old trusted servant of the family who had known the boy and loved him. And he just paid a small sum of money for this picture which had memories for him and sentimental value. And then the auctioneer read again from the will these words. Whoever gets my son gets all. The auction is over. Whoever gets my son gets all. Isn't that the Christian life in one sentence? It's God's wonderful, generous offer to us of everything in Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 1 says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's our inheritance as Christians. The New Testament then uses the word inheritance, but it has a rich Old Testament background, and that's really why we're here today, to, to understand more about this word, word inheritance from the Old Testament, and especially from the book of Joshua. And there in verse 6, God promises his people to Joshua, you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. The promised land was their inheritance. Out of slavery in Egypt, into blessing, into the promised land. That was God's plan. And for them, very simply, inheritance meant three things. First of all, it meant rest. Rest after walking around for 40 years, after the warfare that they were about to engage in. Secondly, it meant plenty. There's this wonderful phrase that comes again and again, that this land is a land flowing with milk and honey. We visited Israel for the first time about a dozen years ago, and at one place we were taken to uh, a, 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 really a sort of farm shop to buy dates. And we were told that the milk in that phrase, milk and honey, is not the liquid that comes from camels. It's the juice that you get when you squeeze dates. And, of course, dates are highly nutritious. Well, I've never heard that before or since, but certainly that's an evocative phrase of the plenty in the promised land. And third of all, and very obviously, it's all a gift. Get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give 
to you. It's all God's gift. And those three things, of course, we can parallel very easily with our salvation. But let's just look for a few minutes at some New Testament verses about inheritance. And I want to go, first of all, to the first letter of Peter, right at the beginning there. Because Peter says in verse 3 of the first chapter, In God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And you may not see it in the English, but actually, Peter is deliberately using promised land language there. This inheritance will not perish. Unlike the promised land, it cannot be ravaged or destroyed by invading armies. It can't be worn out with the passage of time. And remember, this whole world is wearing out. Secondly, it can't spoil, which means it can't be stained or defiled by sin. And the Old Testament makes it very clear that whether it was the surrounding nations or the nation of Israel, where there was sin, it defiled the land. And thirdly, this inheritance will not fade, unlike the flowers of the field that grow up and fade very often in one day. Our inheritance will never lose its beauty or its glory. So then, Peter says, we have this glorious inheritance. But then he goes on to say, kept in heaven for you. Oh dear, do we have to wait for it all until we die? Well, the good news is no. And that's where... Secondly, in these New Testament passages, Hebrews comes in. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, which are not the easiest of chapters, and I don't want to spend a long time on them, but they use promised land language as well. They speak of the time that Moses led the people out of Egypt, and the phrase, or the word that keeps coming is rest. It says again and again that God's desire was to lead his people into his rest. He wanted them to enter into his rest. It occurs about ten times. After all that walking, after all that warfare, he wanted them to rest. He wanted to enjoy them to enjoy his abundant provision, to have a rich and fulfilled life. And it's quite obvious the way that the writer is writing that God wants us to enjoy that rest and that plenty now. And I have good news for you. We can begin to enjoy our inheritance now through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now don't turn to it, but there's a very important word that's used to describe the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1. He is described, quotes, as the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Deposit. It's the same word that we use for down payment when we buy a house. The first payment, the first installment, and the rest is yet to come. And so through the Holy Spirit, we can have the first installment 
of the wonderful life in the new heaven and the new earth that's described at the end of Revelation. We can have a real foretaste now of the inheritance that's kept for us in heaven because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Heaven is a place of perfection, of beauty, of joy, of peace, of love, of intimacy, of security, and so on. And all those things can be our experience now as we go deeper into the life of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> How then can we actually enjoy that foretaste? Still in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, there are two key things here. First is faith. We can enter into our inheritance as we exercise faith in God and in his great and precious promises. Now, to put it negatively, Hebrews 3.19, they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So positively, if you have faith, you can enter into an experience of your inheritance. And then again... Uh, the writer a couple of times quotes from Psalm 95. It's there in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. There's no good hearing God's voice unless you obey it. So the implication is that you need to hear God's voice and believe it and then obey it. So that's the second thing. Trust and obey. These verses also speak about the people being rebellious, which is the opposite of obedience. And the passage also speaks in chapter 4 and verse 11, do not follow their example of disobedience. And that's the sad truth, isn't it? that Israel were so often unbelieving of God's promises and disobedient to his commands. And that's, of course, why they kept wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. It was a discipline because of their unbelief and their disobedience. So the lesson for us is don't do what they did. Believe God's promises. Put faith in him. Obey his commands. And then you can enter into the life of rest. You can enter into the life of plenty. You can have a foretaste now of all the inheritance that's laid up for you in heaven. Now I apologize if that was a bit rapid and tangled. I, hopefully that's the most difficult part of this morning so we've got it over with. But it's trying to link the Old Testament and the New Testament and to understand uh, how we can then apply Joshua. And at the risk of oversimplification, this time in chapter 1 before lunch is about faith, trust in God, and after coffee is about obedience to his commands. So let's come now actually to Joshua chapter 1. And uh, the background, of course, is that the 40 years of wandering are over. 
And uh, now is God's time. Joshua is the leader that God has designated. And very significant to notice that Moses laid his hand on him as God commanded. And it says right at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, just the previous chapter to the one we read a moment ago, Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses laid his hands on him. And so Joshua was appointed and equipped by God, and that's why he was able to lead the people to victory. And so we begin the book of Joshua with God's commission, but it's littered with his promises. And I want us to look at those promises now. There are a number of them. They're pretty straightforward. First of all, promises of God's provision. The land that I am about to give you, verse 2. Verse 3, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Verse 6, you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. The land, as we said, of plenty, flowing with milk and honey. Land of considerable extent, going right to the river Euphrates and right from Lebanon in the north down to the Sinai Desert in the south. And that speaks of God's provision for us, a generous God who lavishes his love upon us, who showers his good gifts on us. And we have this wonderful promise in Philippians. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. More literal translation, in a scale proportionate to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God wants to give good things to his children. He wants to go on blessing us just as he wanted to pour his goodness onto the Israelites in the promised land. Secondly, God promises victory. Look at verse 5. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. And we're going to see some amazing victories at Jericho, at Ai, and so on. And then as we go through the Old Testament again and again, God gives victory to his people when, humanly speaking, they're grossly outnumbered by their foes who are far more powerful. And there's a verse that I love in Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is forged against you will prevail. You will refute every tongue that accuses you. God wants to give us victory in the warfare against the enemy. And as it says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, there's the promise of, pro of God's presence. At the end of verse 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Quoted in Hebrews chapter 13. And the word never is emphatic. Never will I drop you. Never will I let you go. Never will I desert you. 
I remember way back when I was a student hearing a preacher tell about the time that he took his son for an injection. And the son was really tearful. So the dad tried to console him. He tried bribery. He said, if you're a good boy, then we'll go to the toy shop and I'll buy you a toy afterwards. That didn't work at all. So then he tried another tack. Now you're a big boy now and big boys don't cry and so on. It'll be all right. Still the lad was in tears. Then he tried another tack. Well, look, it's only just a tiny little pinprick. It'll only last for a moment. Still the lad was inconsolable. So finally the father said, all right, I'll tell you what. If it means so much to you, I'll come with you and I will be there with you when you have this injection. And immediately the tears dried. And that's what God says to us. In every circumstance of life, I will be with you. I will never fail you or forsake you. When you pass through the deep waters, I will be with you. A God who's there in every circumstance of life. Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, right there beside me. I shall not be shaken. Then there are two final promises of prosperity and success. Verse 8, he is to, Joshua is to meditate on God's law day and night and obey it completely. Then you will be prosperous and successful. A verse that we often quote in the well is from Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. But this raises an interesting question. What is that prosperity? And we know there are those who preach what is often called a prosperity gospel. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be rich. Uh, you can have anything that you ask for if you ask for it in faith. I'm not quite sure it's as simple as that. Two comments. First of all, obviously, the prosperity that God is talking about in the first instance is of spiritual prosperity, prospering in our relationship with him. But secondly, there's a note that I find missing in that preaching of the prosperity gospel. Yes, often God does want to give us more materially, but why? Is it so that I can indulge myself more and have more and more stuff? No, it's so that I can give more and more away. Paul has a long discussion in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 about Christian giving. And this is what he says in chapter 9 and verse 11. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. My friend, if God blesses you materially, don't just assume that it's all for you so that you can have more things. Ask God, who do you want me to bless with this money that you've given me? Who is there that I can help? To whom can I be generous? Prosperity 
and then success. And of course, under Joshua's leadership, they were successful. And they did take the land. And at the end of the book, it says, quotes, that God gave them rest from all their enemies around them. God wants you to be successful in your Christian life. God wants you to be successful in the ministry that God has given to you. When I entered theological college mm, 48 years ago, um, long time, 49 years ago, it was because God had called me to the ministry. That's how we talked about it in those days. As if there were only one ministry that only revs could conduct. Praise God, he's shown us something different since then. Ministry simply means service, an area of service. Every Christian has an area of service. That's why always nowadays when I speak about my own ministry, I talk about pastoral ministry. Because there are so many other kinds of ministry. Do you know what your ministry is? If not, then ask God. And one way of finding that out is to say, within the Christian life, what is my passion? What gets me excited when people start talking about it? What do I have a heart to do for the Lord? What am I effective in? In those sort of ways, you can begin to discern what your ministry is. And it could be one of a multitude of things. But God wants you to know your ministry. And he wants you to be successful in fulfilling it. Jesus said this at the end of his life. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And I trust that you will be able to say the same at the end of your life. I know what God called me to do. And I went for it. So those are God's promises. And let me just say that when God gives promises, he gives them willingly. In this human life, sometimes we drag promises out of people, don't we? Oh, well, okay, I'll do that if you really want me to. God is not like that. He's given these promises gladly because he wants to. He wants to bless us. He wants us to claim them. And he's delighted when we lay hold of them and say, God, you said you would do this, so now I'm asking you to do it. <clears throat> At the end of his life, in Joshua 23, 14, Joshua says this, Not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. And Psalm 145, verse 13 says, The Lord is faithful to all his promises. That's why we sing, great is your faithfulness. So there are the promises that we are to trust. <clears throat> and then out of that uh, will come the second half of this chapter where God then lays down his conditions. So let's uh, just read the second half of the chapter, verse 10. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready 
Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that God, Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whatever you may command them, will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So this is what the people must do on the back of God's conditions. First of all, I've said they need to know. They need to know the big picture and how they fit into it. That was obvious for them. We are part of God's people who are going to take this whole land and live in it. What's the big picture for you and me? It's to do with the kingdom of God. The fact that Jesus came to bring the rule, the kingdom of God into this world. And you and I have been called to play our part in extending the kingdom. We need to get hold of that big picture. I don't know if you sing or sang that song in your church, Our God is a Great Big God. And I love that line that says this, How wonderful to be a part of God's amazing plan. Do you know that you're part of God's amazing plan to reclaim this world from the enemy, to establish his kingdom rule? That's what it's all about. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the challenge to us. <clears throat> Secondly, they are to uh, meditate, or Joshua is to meditate. Uh, he is to meditate on God's law day and night, and be careful to do everything written in it. Verse 8. And that ties up, of course, with Psalm 1 that says that the godly man or the godly woman meditates on God's law day and night. Since I left pastoral ministry, uh, Helen and I, for eight consecutive years, have been able to travel to India and to teach the Bible there, especially in poorer areas where the pastors don't have the opportunity to go to Bible college. And we drink lots of chai while we're there, which is their tea. And you may feel that this is a pretty awful way to make tea, but they put the water, the tea leaves, the milk, the sugar, all in together and boil it up. And then they serve you this 
with sugar in whether you want it or not. Actually, it tastes pretty good and it's pretty refreshing. But the point is this, that the water and the milk takes on the flavor of the tea leaves because of that constant contact with it as it's being boiled up. And in the same way, you and I are to have constant contact with the Word of God day by day. Read it, chew on it, meditate on it, so that the whole of our lives are influenced by it and flavored by it. The world is all around us trying to impress its standards, its values, its attitudes on us. And so we need to meditate on the Word of God as Joshua was told to if we are to enter more fully into our inheritance. So not only meditate on it, but then do it. Next, they were to prepare. They were to, verse 11, get your supplies ready. They needed provisions, food and drink, and they needed to get their weapons ready. Let's think of food first of all. And I've just touched on that. The Bible is our spiritual food. And it's so important that we spend time every day in the Word of God and in prayer, what's often called the quiet time. And if anyone is, says, well, I'm too busy to do that, then you are too busy. It's so important that we carve out a time to meet with the Lord in his word and in prayer day by day. Then, of course, they needed water as well as food. That speaks of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I wish I had time to talk about that. But we had a thirst for more of the Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. He is the one, as we've said, who enables us to experience more and more of the blessings of our inheritance. And then we need weapons. We're going to talk a lot more about that when we speak about the capture of Jericho uh, uh, after coffee, uh, after lunch. Um, but just to say that we have spiritual weapons. Let's remember that. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, spiritual weapons. Next thing they're to do is to unite, and this is very interesting. The promised land extended and extends either side of the Jordan. And three of the tribes were allotted land on the east where they were at this point. And it would have been so easy to say, well, okay, here we are, we've arrived, we can just settle down right away and build our houses and enjoy the promised land. Let the other nine tribes get on with conquering the land west of the Jordan. And God, through Moses, says, no way. You see, if that had happened, it could so easily have led to resentment by those nine tribes. Why are these three tribes not helping us? Resentment could have led to division. You could have ended up with two nations. Unity is so, so important among the people of God. That's why Ephesians 4 says, Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's why Psalm 133 says how 
Blessed it is, how wonderful when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commands the blessing. If only we realized how important unity is. How important it is to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. And how important it is not to push our own way among the people of God, but to submit to his will. And that takes us on to the next thing. Submit. This is how the people respond to Moses, in, uh, to Joshua in verse 17. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. And again, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. That's in the previous verse. I got that the wrong way around. I'm sorry. Submission to the leaders whom God has put over us is so important. Look at this verse in Thessalonians. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work and live at peace with one another. Another translation says respect them. God says that leadership is important. Sadly, we live in a day where often our political leaders are criticized and denigrated and lampooned. That's the spirit of the age. But we need to have a different spirit, a different attitude of respecting and trusting those over us. So often, churches are blighted by power struggles. Someone pushing to have their way not willing to submit to the leadership. And I noticed another thing that can happen. Sadly saw this in my ministry. Here is someone who has a responsible position at work, who is used to managing others, used to making decisions. And when they come to church, they act in the same way instead of submitting to those in leadership over them. That can cause real problems. But I remember I had one godly man who was high up in human resources. But when he came into church, he was able, as it were, to switch roles and to give respect to the office of pastor and to consult with me and uh, to work alongside me rather than competition against me. We need to respect leadership. And that's true for me in the well. Yes, I am a pastor of many years' experience, more years than Anne. But I remember, you recall this, Anne, particularly in the earlier days, I would say, Anne, you are the director. Direct me. Because I'm under Anne's authority when I'm here working at the well. Submit. And two other things quickly be strong and be courageous. Three times that comes. And we need to be strong and courageous soldiers as well as having strong and courageous leaders. Now, part of being strong has to do with not being a people pleaser. There's that uh, warning in Proverbs 29. Fear of man, fear of other people will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. By contrast, Paul says, we make it our goal to please him. 
we should be more concerned that we fear God and please him than that we fear other people and kowtow to them. And be courageous. Again, we all need to be courageous, not just our leaders. And courage doesn't mean ignoring the dangers or pretending they're not there. It means acknowledging them, but going ahead in faith nevertheless. And we're going to see that clearly as we're thinking of the taking of uh, crossing of the Jordan and taking of Jericho and Ai. Uh, and it's the Holy Spirit who gives us that courage. Uh, after they have prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and, as a consequence, spoke the word of God boldly. And so we are to be courageous people. One of my heroes, are we allowed heroes in the Christian faith? I hope we are. One of the people I greatly admire and respect is the late John Wimber. And I often think of his spelling lesson. Some of you will know that. Faith is spelt R-I-S-K. Have you heard that? And you will never get far in the life of faith unless you are prepared, as God directs, to take risks. And in that connection, one of my favorite verses is here from Matthew. It's not easy to translate, and we've not got the best translation here, I'm afraid, on the screen. I think the best translation is this. The kingdom of God advances forcefully, and forceful men and women lay hold of it. We think of forcefulness as something bad, but really it's saying here that forcefulness is the opposite of being namby-pamby and hesitant, the opposite of trembling on the bank of the Jordan, unprepared to step in. Forceful means that you're willing to go for it. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God needs to have people who are courageous, people who are forceful, People are willing to go for it because then we shall see God at work and then we shall enjoy more of our inheritance. So then, in this opening chapter, God, first of all, gives his promises and then he gives the commands that we have to obey in order fully to claim the promises. Joshua obeys because... He believes the promises. Let us lay hold of the promises and let us obey also. Anne.